Hello and uh, welcome to India Speak, uh, the podcast by Center for Policy Research. I'm uh, Sham Saran and uh, I'm senior fellow at the center and I have served earlier as India's uh, foreign secretary. Uh, this is the first episode in our series, uh, which uh, features very distinguished experts in international relations, uh, foreign policy, as well as you know diplomacy. Uh, and uh, today uh, we are going to be looking at the subject of multilateralism, uh, and you know the potential for cooperation amongst uh, states, particularly when uh, confronted with uh, what are becoming very cross-cutting global uh, challenges, like the one which we are living through, the pandemic itself. And uh, I have with me uh, Ambassador Ashok Mukherjee to really have a a conversation about uh, this uh, subject. But of course, uh, much of the talking will be done by him, not by me. Uh, So welcome, uh, Ashok, uh, to this uh, podcast. We are very Uh, Honored to have you uh, on our uh, podcast uh, series. Um, Let me just uh, introduce uh, Ambassador uh, Ashok Mukherjee. He's a retired uh, foreign service officer like me, but his last assignment was in New York, where he was ambassador and permanent representative uh, of India uh, to the United Nations, a very, very prestigious and important post. And uh, he has also been uh, involved in other key multilateral assignments. For example, he was India's trade negotiator at the World Trade Organization. Uh, That's what's from 1995 to 1998. And uh, also at the United Nations itself, he has handled some very, very important and complex issues such as cybersecurity or uh, counter uh, terrorism. And uh, we will have a chance to speak about those uh, as well. Uh, He has also served in uh, the United Kingdom, uh, the Russian Federation, uh, the United Arab uh, Emirates, uh, the US and the former Yugoslavia. Uh, So he has had a very varied uh, kind of uh, career in various geographies uh, across the world. Uh, So uh, let me begin by pointing out to you and perhaps eliciting your reaction to this today. Uh, As I said, most of the challenges which uh, states are confronted with uh, are truly global in dimension. So uh, look at the uh, pandemic, you know, there is no hope of being able to really overcome this challenge unless, uh, you know, states uh, work together, coordinate their actions, uh, because even if um, one person is not safe, uh, the whole world is not safe. I mean, that's the kind of situation we are in. Um, We have just recently had the Glasgow Climate Summit. uh, And that is another uh, challenge of uh, global dimension. Again, uh, no matter what each country does by itself, uh, will not really make a difference as far as the overall challenge is concerned. I give the example as as a climate change negotiator that even if India's uh, you know, emissions became zero tomorrow by some miracle. Would that stop climate change? It would not. You know, we would still be uh, affected by it. So uh, there are a whole range of issues. Cybersecurity is something that you dealt with. Counterterrorism is something that you dealt with. These are all, you know, in the nature of global challenges. And yet, when the uh, need for multilateralism, 
need for multilateral approaches, uh, empowered international institutions which can actually deliver some of those solutions. When that need has become so compelling, uh, we are actually moving in the reverse direction, isn't it? Uh, so how how do you look at this uh, this paradox that we are confronted with? Right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, sir, for inviting me. And uh, I'm uh, very happy to interact with you on this uh, topic of multilateralism. Uh, I uh, feel that, uh, you know, a lot of times we take multilateralism for granted, that it's there somewhere and it's always benign. But uh, and sometimes uh, I've come across uh, situations where uh, multilateralism is also seen as uh, something that is esoteric and not related to our day to day lives. But I think that uh, there are two points that I would like to make in a very broad sense at the beginning. The first is that multilateralism and what we call bilateralism in our foreign relations are complementary. They feed each other. And uh, therefore, you cannot have a situation where you only pursue one at, and, and ignore the other. You have to do both. And I think the, the major powers, and the, especially the five permanent members of the Security Council, uh, follow this uh, pattern. And I think it's worth uh, keeping that in mind. Uh, the second is that uh, multilateralism uh, impacts on our day-to-day -day lives, uh, despite our not probably being very conscious of it. And I was asked this question when I went to New York by, uh, by our, uh, our prime minister. He said that, you know, how does this uh, United Nations make uh, a difference uh, for us? And I said that, you know, they're simple things. For example, the polio vaccination campaign came through the World Health Organization. The Green uh, Revolution had a role of the Food and Agriculture Organization. Uh, our developmental program, the IIT in Bombay, uh, which was one of our first IITs, had a multilateral uh, support uh, uh, system and so on. So, and, and today, uh, and, and that's the point that I'd really like to make, today that is the central agenda of multilateralism, what we call Agenda 2030. Now, uh, Agenda 2030 seems to be uh, a subject of great discussion among think tanks. And in India, Niti Aayog is the leading think tank involved with Agenda 2030. But uh, having negotiated Agenda 2030 in uh, those two and a half years in New York, I, I, I think that the fact that Agenda 2030 is, uh, has two dimensions which make it completely enmeshed in our day-to-day -day lives needs to be kept into, in, in, in account. One dimension is that it is a creation of multiple stakeholders. It is not only governments who created Agenda 2030. Agenda 2030 was created with the participation of business, of academia, and most important, of civil society, including the youth. So they were all present in the hall. It's quite unfortunate that from India, we didn't have this participation at that time. But uh, the, many of the other countries participated through this multiple stakeholder uh, approach. And uh, when it comes to implementing uh, the outcome, then you have a role for the same stakeholders who have brought their issues onto the agenda itself. So therefore, it's an interactive two-way uh, process. The, the second uh, point is that in implementing Agenda 2030, there were some of us, India, Brazil especially, who took the lead in, in those years, 2013 to 2015, of focusing on the role of technology in implementing uh, development. Now, that is a perspective which till today is somehow considered to be a preserve of only the developed countries 
and uh, developing countries are seen to be trying to break a system of intellectual property rights to get their hands on technology. Unfortunately, the same approach is playing out today as we speak on COVID, uh, where there's a whole uh, logjam, if I may call it that, in uh, the World Trade Organization on uh, how to deal with a proposal to have a waiver from uh, the trade-related intellectual property rights of the World Trade Organization for the manufacture of uh, uh, vaccines against COVID. So that's an example. And therefore, the point that I'd like to make is that multilateralism actually affects us in a very, very direct way, although many times we may not be conscious of it in, uh, 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 in a related way. And because we are meeting on this uh, platform of Zoom, even this technology of uh, information and communications technology, or what we call the digital technology today, that also came into our lives through multilateralism. I remember I was the negotiator uh, in basic telecoms in 1997, and there was a, a, a focus on uh, getting an outcome for opening the markets of every country that was participating. In 1997, India's focus was on uh, the landline sector. We did not have mobile telephony. So our mandate from the cabinet was that you have an agreement to open the market, but in a phased way so that uh, we are not taken by surprise. So we have a five-year period for phasing in uh, foreign uh, access into the Indian market for landlines. Now, one morning, the Brazilian delegate and myself, who we were colleagues in textile uh, negotiations, uh, he came to me and, with a piece of paper and said, have you seen this paper and why weren't you at the meeting? So I said, what was the meeting? He said it was a meeting convened by South Korea and the United States to discuss this paper on the top of which was uh, uh, printed Spectrum. So I said, thank you for telling me this, but now I must uh, tell our people who have come from India about this subject. And I went uh, to our secretary telecom who was uh, leading our delegation at that time. And he looked at it and he said, Spectrum is something in the rules of business in India under the Ministry of Defense. We have nothing to do with it. So uh, that is our internal uh, situation. So when I went back to the negotiation and you were concluding the negotiation, which meant we had to sign uh, on the outcome document. And uh, when the paper came to us and I had uh, very fortunately a technical engineer from the post and telegraph department with me to advise. And I said, what should I sign on this column which says uh, uh, spectrum? He said, just sign unbound, meaning don't limit it. And that was his advice as a technical person. And I took that risk, if I may call it that, a risk at that time. But today, all of us have smartphones in our pockets, and that's how multilateralism works. So I agree with you, Ashok. In fact, you are uh, only reinforcing what I started with, that multilateralism is becoming such a compelling uh, you know, thing in, in our world uh, today. And what you example that you gave is, is uh, really uh, demonstrative of that. Uh, what I want you to focus on is that given that compulsion that we have, uh, would you not agree that we are in a sense, uh, the, the impression is that we are going in the reverse direction? And the inability to actually come up with those kind of multilateral approaches uh, precisely to handle uh, some of these uh, issues. What do we do with that? Well, I, I agree with you. And I think that for, to, uh, to uh, address this uh, topic, one needs to take a step back and, uh, and go into the period between 1943 to 1948, when uh, the current multilateral structures were conceptualized and created. And at that time, the conception was that there were two big uh, uh, areas. One was to secure the peace. 
And, and that is the structure that we confront every day in our lives today. The United Nations, the United Nations Security Council, the mandate given in the UN Charter to the five countries who are called the Permanent Five or P5 of the Security Council to secure the peace. But simultaneously, there was a process to sustain the peace. And I think a lot of us have forgotten about it. But to sustain the peace, the international institutions were conceptualized. And there were two sets of institutions. The first set was uh, the institutions created by uh, the Bretton Woods Conference, the International Monetary Fund, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development of the World Bank. And they were to coordinate a supportive role for financial and for development policies to uh, sustain the peace. And the third institution, which was conceptualized, but unfortunately never came up until 1995, was the, well, the International Trade Organization. Because the... The, the triggers of the Second World War included protectionism, something that we are seeing again today. So therefore, you have uh, these, uh, this process. Uh, the other part of uh, sustaining the peace was to reach to the uh, family of uh, specialized agencies set up during the League of Nations time, uh, which uh, could play a role as, uh, as supporting the, uh, the work of the United Nations in securing the peace. So you have the World Health Organization, the FAO, and so on and so forth. There are 17 such organizations today uh, and new organizations have been created. But the problem goes uh, into the malfunctioning of the multilateral system. The malfunctioning of the multilateral system uh, for, from 1946 till 1990 was essentially due to the Cold War. And the Cold War polarized the five permanent members. And uh, along with those five permanent members were several countries which were part of uh, their uh, larger family. And you had NATO on one side, you had Warsaw Pact on the other side, and you had a group which didn't want to be either in NATO or Warsaw Pact, and that's the non-aligned group as it came to be known in 1961. But in 1948, when the United Nations started uh, uh, implementing its vision and its charter, uh, you already had the beginning of what we see today as the polarization between the major powers. And I think it's uh, worth looking at this because India was a signatory uh, of the UN Charter in 1945. And yet in 1946, when the General Assembly met for its first session in London, in India's statement, you have a reference to the compromise that India was very unhappy with uh, in the UN Charter. The compromise was on what I call the anomaly of the UN Charter, the, the giving of the veto power to these P5 countries. And I think that uh, in the statement of India in 1946, there is a, a, an expectation that in 10 years time, the veto would be reviewed and would not be used, would not be there actually in the UN Charter. These are the words of Ramaswamy Mudalia, who signed the UN Charter on behalf of India. Now, um, look at the Charter. There is Article 109. Article 109 is very clear. It says that in 10 years time from the date the Charter comes into effect, the provisions of the charter will be reviewed. But because of the Cold War, this never happened. And till today, we haven't had a review of the charter. So one way to address the issue that you have raised of the malfunctioning of the multilateral system, and especially with the United Nations as the most universal of all the multilateral institutions, is to have a review of the UN Charter. Now, that is easier said than done. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the structure uh, has has these, you know, in, in, in a sense, certain flaws that uh, do uh, militate against the kind of role that uh, these institu international institutions should play. But then, you know, all these organizations, 
really are what the members uh, make them to be you know uh, it's not as if they have a certain kind of a independent uh, you know agency uh, in that sense um, you mentioned uh, the uh, p5 and you mentioned the uh, veto now um, uh, while you have drawn attention to the fact that you know uh, the cold war polarized uh, especially the five permanent members and therefore the possibility of the un really performing its uh, mandated role was therefore in a sense uh, diminished but uh, you know we also see that even during the uh, worst years of the cold war uh, the p5 were very very uh, zealous in protecting their own privileges <laughs> I mean, the classic example is the uh, non proliferation treaty i mean india was one of the initiators of those negotiations if you remember um but when it came to the final uh, you know outcome uh, the five in a sense not the five at that time the four in that sense they 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 banded together uh, and uh, created this uh, very unequal kind of a world of the nuclear haves and the nuclear uh, have nots and you have just recently seen the p5 statement on nuclear war uh you know um and i have i have responded to that by saying that uh if these being weapons of mass destruction um how do you how do you achieve what you say you want to achieve if the other uh, nuclear weapon states who are there uh, who are not part of the npt but are nuclear weapon states uh, nevertheless uh, if they are not in that uh, process going further how do you make this happen if other stakeholders which are all the entire community of non nuclear weapon states um if they are not part of this process how do you make this happen and there is a illogic in terms of saying nuclear war must uh, never be fought they can never be won and at the same time refuse to for example have what we have been suggesting as india a convention on the prohibition uh, of the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons pending uh nuclear disarmament so there is this uh, this this uh, dichotomy also don't you see i mean what has been your experience i mean you have been pr in uh, new york um what is your uh, you know uh, impression about the functioning of the p5 uh, at the united nations uh, can you give us uh, some insight into that well uh, uh, you are you are right and uh, and you have described it in in broad terms and specifically with reference to non proliferation and i agree with what you have said uh, on on the ground the p5 in 2021 are very different from what the p5 were when the charter was signed and i think that's the first point that in 1945 you had a tremendous uh, uh, enthusiasm and participation of the united states of america which conceptualized the united nations it, the united nations itself is a our words used by franklin delano roosevelt and he is the one who brought it into international relations so you had the us leadership in 1945 today in 2021 you do not see the united states as uh, playing any leadership role within the multilateral system and especially in the united nations and particularly in the un security council so i think that this is something that uh, has uh, created space Or, or 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 made the 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 entire enterprise drift because of the lack of uh, uh, the the continuing commitment of the united states to leading on the ground and the best example uh, in recent years of what i'm saying is that uh, when the united states decided to shift its embassy to jerusalem 
They also went to the multilateral system in the UN General Assembly and uh, uh, put a resolution and asked for a vote on, on whether this would, uh, was approved, uh, this is part of the multilateral approach to uh, the topic or not. And the end result was that only nine countries voted with the United States out of 193. So that was very revealing of where the United States stands in terms of the larger international community. And within the permanent five, within the Security Council, 15 members, which are dominated by the permanent five because of their veto power, the United States has not been able to uh, play a leadership role, which means also to, to implement what uh, it sets out to do. The best example of that, which I've written about, is the, uh, is the Afghanistan situation. In 2011, soon after uh, Osama bin Laden was killed, within a month, the United States is the country that drafted the resolution adopted in June uh, 2011, which called for reintegrating the Taliban into the political structure of uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and to do that, they bifurcated the counterterrorism sanctions list into a sanctions list for Al-Qaeda and a sanctions list for the Taliban. And the Taliban sanctions list was supposed to be whittled down as Taliban became part of the mainstream political process in Afghanistan. That was a US idea. But all the five agreed to it. All the other four permanent members agreed to it. That's why the uh, resolution was adopted unanimously. Now, fast forward to uh, 2020 and 2021. In 2020, the United States decided to do a bilateral agreement with the Taliban in the Doha agreement. And they also did a bilateral agreement with the Ashraf Ghani government. And they brought both these agreements into a UN Security Council resolution, which meant that they would both have to be implemented together. And the United Nations Security Council in March 2020 adopted a unanimous resolution approving this. Now, in August 2021, uh, when uh, the, uh, the United States withdrew, uh, announced its withdrawal and withdrew its troops from Afghanistan, they did not play a leadership role in implementing the two Security Council resolutions that they themselves had drafted. And instead, they allowed uh, an, a, 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 a faulty outcome, if I may call it that, uh, a, a tilted outcome in which you have one party, the Taliban, now controlling Afghanistan. Now, has the United States learned from this experience? And my information from New York is no. Even now, when we are dealing with uh, the, the restructuring of the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan, UNAMA, the United States is, as the, as the drafter of the resolution, is playing a role in which it is opposing attempts by countries like France and India to uh, impose conditionalities on the Taliban uh, so that the humanitarian assistance that flows of $4 billion worth is not going to be used by them to, to consolidate themselves in power. They have a commitment for an inclusive government in the Doha agreement. They have to, they have to implement that, uh, that thing. So therefore, this is the United States. Now you look at uh, the, the other big player which uh, in the Second World War, the Soviet Union. Now, Soviet Union uh, played a status quo role. The Soviet Union is largely responsible for the introduction of the veto because that was the price paid to get the Soviet Union to join the United Nations. Now, in the first 15 years, the Soviet Union used its veto in, uh, in a very, very frequently to block uh, new countries from joining the General Assembly of the United Nations because they felt that all these countries would be uh, voting on the side of the United States and of the Cold War divide between the East and West. But in 1960, and that's one of the great achievements of countries like India in the United Nations, the process which we today call decolonization came to a head and a unanimously the five 
permanent members agreed not to use their veto to block new countries and that led to the the, the changed character of the united nations on the ground but in the security council the p5 were uh, were as you said were were, were bent on uh, on uh, on keeping their privileges and their main privilege the crown jewel that they hold is the veto when you call for un security council reform today you immediately find the p5 are in one uh, group against the rest of the world because they feel that the reform will take away the veto and actually the reform has to take away the veto because the rest of the un charter doesn't have uh, this provision uh, no quite right i i see see the the uh, point that you are making i'm uh, only uh, wondering whether in the experience that you have had uh, you know as india's pr at the un um uh, you have you have come across this uh, aspect that uh, while there may be uh, political tensions then there may be you know confrontation uh, like like today for example between the us and uh, china uh, and yet uh, we had the p5 statement on uh, nuclear war which was uh, obviously negotiated amongst them and uh, i was also uh, surprised to find that actually this p5 process as it is called has been in place in geneva at the conference on disarmament for quite a few years so that's uh, something which is important now we have not much time left so i wanted to focus attention on india and multilateralism and uh, you mentioned the fact that um, you know in the early years um, how india you know was in a sense a champion of the united nations you know i mean if you look at mr nehru's writings uh this was uh, an institution in which uh, there were pretty high hopes which had been you know built in uh and you also had india despite the fact that it was uh, a developing country much weaker in a sense than it is today in if you look at it in pure power terms you know economic capabilities or security capabilities uh india actually was one of the most active players on the international stage uh and particularly at the united nations i mean if you take for example decolonization uh if you take for example you know the uh, mobilizing uh, international public opinion against apartheid in uh, in uh, south africa uh, much more important many people do not even perhaps know this that india played a critical role uh in the in the uh, drafting of the universal declaration on human rights you know at a time where both <laughs> the united states and the then soviet union were actually not very happy uh, with that with that uh, initiative um or you take uh, many of the disarmament related uh, issues you know I, uh, when i was uh, posted in geneva from 1980 to 1983 uh, to what was then known as the committee on disarmament and i had the privilege of uh, taking part in the uh, special session on disarmament uh in new york i stayed in new york something like 3 months <laughs> you know for the preparatory work and the, the conference itself and there was such a tremendous amount of you know uh, shall i say energy amongst the developing countries amongst the non aligned countries to push ahead uh with uh, international security and disarmament related issue and india was right up there in front uh in 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 mobilizing that and quite successfully i mean we may not have been able to achieve many practical results but certainly in terms of mobilizing international public opinion for some of these uh, issues uh, india actually played a huge role 
so when i look at that kind of activism that kind of you know uh, energy that india brought to multilateral diplomacy uh, during that phase um maybe because <laughs> i have i have uh, you know perhaps uh, uh, rather pink uh, uh, memories about about that period uh, but uh, somehow it appears to me that uh, that seems to have flagged uh, somewhat is that your experience or is it that we are working in a different kind of a way in the, in multilateralism well i think uh, what you've said is right the three major contributions of india to the human rights structures of multilateralism as you mentioned are non discrimination the anti apartheid movement the empowerment of women uh, gender equality hansa mehta's role in the universal declaration of human rights and the outlawing of mass atrocity crimes most people forget that india was the sponsor of the genocide uh, uh, of the resolution which resulted in the uh, convention against genocide in 1948 and the, uh, so therefore these were major initiatives and then of course decolonization now i would say that uh, as uh, the united nations and multilateralism itself has evolved in these last 75 76 years the focus has come to development and to sustainable development and i think that this is something that india is uh, naturally uh, positioned to play a leadership role a, a role not only to implement uh the goals that are set before us but also to conceptualize the goals and to suggest ways in which the 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 the, the process works on the ground on the basis of our experience that is what gives india what i call a constituency in multilateralism and among countries across the world the the relevance of our uh, experience of development for their uh, processes of development and that is the the main concern of most countries in the multilateral system today is on what affects them i mean climate change affects uh, a large number of them and 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 therefore they want multilateralism to support them in their efforts to uh, to combat com- climate change similarly a uh, growing uh, expectation that there is a huge uh, uh, dimension of the digital world which is coming into being and here is something that actually countries like india should play a leadership role but that is not uh, uh, very visible in the multilateral structures and 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 the the downside of uh, india not articulating her either uh, the sustainable development issues or the digital issues the downside of that is that the multilateral system itself carries on getting uh fragmented or 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 becoming like silos much like what has happened in a uh, nuclear disarmament so uh, for example in uh, sustainable development now the focus is on something called oceans now india has declared a huge policy of sagar from 2015 onwards as a maritime country and a maritime power and yet india is not nowhere in the corridors of multilateral discussions on the agenda of the oceans which will be adopted in june this year in but june. why why is that that is because Uh, there is a gap between the conceptualization and the implementation on the ground i think we do not have as yet a pool of people who will actually work in the negotiating halls of multilateral institutions to implement what we say are our objectives and that has happened in the world health organization when we became chair of the executive board everybody thought that that was where india would make a difference and this covid vaccine issue would be resolved but one year later when we finished our chairmanship nothing happened and that's because there's a lack of uh, trained and and focused negotiators on the ground and i'm so you are saying that this is lack of capacity i'm saying it's not only lack of capacity but lack of priority of resource allocation 
because for example for digital issues india is a country which has used digital technology so uh, uh, intensely in the last 7 years there should be no shortage of people but today there are there are no negotiators from india in the in the halls of multilateralism where they are setting the norms the standards the policies on digital issues so then you are actually ending up with uh, norms being actually put in place and rules of the game being put in place uh, in the framing of which you have not had any role that's right and isn't that rather risky that is risky and that leads to the other perception that india is continually a naysayer now india is not actually a naysayer as a, a, in terms of our basic dna as we talked about in the early years of multilateralism india was interested and involved in also creating the multilateral agenda and we succeeded with decolonization and sustainable development but ashok i mean surely we had less capacity <laughs> in the 50s and the 60s uh, and today we ought to have more capacity isn't it i mean so is that because there has not been a sort of a recognition at the political level that this is really important and that we need to build up uh, you know our capacities i mean you have seen how difficult it was for example to get uh, a, a sanction for the increase in numbers of the foreign service itself you know we were we we, we have just uh, actually managed to get uh, over a 10 year period uh, a doubling of something like 750 that we started off with and we will still end up with 1500 which is grossly grossly you know inadequate when you come to uh, looking at the uh, sort of extent of engagement that we have with the rest of the world uh, so uh, if, if that is if that is the sort of uh, at the political level there is a, there is an issue uh, is there some way that we can we can really uh, you know push this because uh, i do feel that we are losing out in a sense because you know this was my experience during the time that uh, i was a sherpa uh with for the prime minister when the g g8 uh, and g5 process uh, had started and then we had the g20 a lot of the work was actually being done in smaller working groups you know once the decisions were taken at the high level in which we were very very active but when it came to as you say actually doing the nitty gritty work in those those you know committees and the working groups uh india was absent And, and i think this is really uh, really uh, uh, something that we really need to address very 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 quickly yes i think that it's very important and especially because of what i talked about in terms of leadership of multilateral ideas and and systems now if you have a country which like the united states has withdrawn you you still have a nature abhors a vacuum and now you have other countries which have stepped in there for example china is the biggest player and we all talk about it but what do we do about it is also important and i gave the example of the oceans conference because you and i know about the chinese maritime uh, interests and, and the national you know the, the bri and the maritime bri and everything like that but what is happening on the ground is as an alignment of their national interests with their multilateral uh, structures they are doing the same in the cyber and digital world in virtually every field actually i mean and and they uh, really put a lot of attention to really building up uh, capacity i'll give you an example when i was at the uh, committee on disarmament in 1980 and they had just joined the year before i was one single delegate handling the plenary handling all the informal meetings handling the working groups and the chinese delegation had 17 or 18 people who would 
one person would be talking, but there would be 16 of them sitting behind and furiously taking notes, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, there was a very, very deliberate effort to build up uh, capacity, knowing that they, they, they were lacking in terms of expertise, but they made every effort possible to build up. Uh, Ashok, we don't have much time, so I want to just put the last question to you. Uh, and this is uh, India's own uh, sort of claim to be a permanent member of the Security Council. Um, you know, this is <laughs> every now and then it comes up. There is a view, this is a waste of time. Why are you putting effort in this when we know that nothing is going to come out of it? Uh, as someone who has been PR to New York, as someone whom I'm sure has had to deal with this issue of and on, uh, what is your own view? Well, I think it is not a waste of time because of one reason, and that is that it's in the Charter, and the Charter is a legal treaty. In the Charter, the Security Council decisions are binding on all members of the United Nations, Article 25 of the Charter. So if there are decisions of the Security Council which uh, go against India, uh, and there have been several cases which have been written about by me, including by me, then India must be at the table as an equal partner in taking those decisions. Now, our experience in the last one year in the Security Council has shown the limitations of being an elected member because we don't have the veto power. So we cannot, even the Afghanistan resolution that we talk about of 31st August uh, last year was drafted by the United States. It was not drafted by India. And therefore, I think that equal membership of the Security Council is important. Now, uh, uh, the, the, the reason why it's not a waste of time and resources is because India has aspirations. And even if you take that figure of a $5 trillion economy, to reach that uh, objective, we have to have a supportive international environment. A lot of decisions of the Security Council affect that international environment around us, including on issues which are uh, maritime, on which we have uh, uh, several examples, but also on continental issues, on, 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 on war and peace on our borders. Now, all these issues uh, are under the charter uh, in the remit of the UN Security Council, and any decision it takes is going to have an impact on us. And then there's the larger issues, which you mentioned right at the beginning, the global issues, on which the Security Council so far, because of its uh, fragmentation or its lack of leadership, has not taken a role. But supposing there is a resolution on COVID, or supposing there's a resolution on digital economies, on cybersecurity, that resolution will be binding on us. So it's far better for us to be inside the tent to participate in making sure that those decisions reflect our interests and concerns rather than having to respond. Yeah, and I agree why, why it is important, but is it likely? I mean, that's the, I think the question that people are putting is that why are you putting so much of effort in on, on an issue where you know that that is not likely to be much traction for at least for the foreseeable few? Well, I think I would just give an answer to that by saying that for a long time when I was there also, they said it would take a third world war to recreate uh, this structure. And I would say that the COVID pandemic is equal in impact to a third world war because what has happened has affected every country and uh, most of humanity. And therefore, we must take this opportunity to call. The only way it can be done uh, nego through negotiation is by convening the general conference, which is promised in Article 109 of the Charter. Nobody wants to speak of it. The P5 don't want to speak of it because they don't want to change. But the rest of the world has to come together and it's a simple vote, a majority vote of the General Assembly and seven members of the Security Council without giving any veto. 
So it's a it's a doable proposition to hold the general conference, and I would suggest that we should actually convert that summit that um, the Secretary General wants to convene in 2023 into this general conference. And the general conference has the power to review the charter, and that's the way the Security Council reform can take place because everything under that will be on the basis of the rules of procedure of the General Assembly, which is a two-third majority vote. If we cannot get 129 countries to agree on Security Council reform, then I agree with you that it is a waste of time. <laughs> well, I think I, I think uh, with very accomplished uh, diplomats uh, who have served in that position, I am sure that our diplomats are uh, certainly up to it. But I think uh, that's an important uh, point that you have made. Why it is important to claim to keep our claim uh, alive on this issue? Uh, Shok, thank you very much. We have run out of time. But it has been a most engaging conversation. I think we have learned a great deal from you. You have offered us insights which very rarely, uh, you know, are available to a general audience. And I'm sure that people who will listen to this podcast will greatly benefit from it. Thank you very much and have a very nice day. Thank you, sir. And I wish all our listeners a good day also. Thank you for listening and for more information on our work. Please follow us on Twitter at uh, CPR underscore India. And you can also log in to our website at uh, www.cprindia.org. Thank you very much. Thank you.